Welcome to the Pikes Peak Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Under the heading of the church, there's three key things that we try to do here. One is to connect seekers, to help people who are seeking God to find Him. And then to grow believers, to help those who know Jesus to keep growing stronger and stronger, to be partners with Him in His work. And then to strengthen families. We know um, it's so important that we bring what we're learning about the Lord into our home environments. And that's sometimes where the disconnect happens. And I think today's message will be very practical for those of us who live in a home, where we're, whether we're married or whether we've got kids in the home, or it might even spill over into relationships at work, at school, friendships you have. Because today we're talking about fighting words. We're in this series called Words with Friends, and words are powerful. In the book of Proverbs, it says, the power of life and death is in the tongue. Power of life and death is in the tongue. And so the words we speak either help bring life or they can, they can bring death. We talked about critical words a couple weeks ago. Pastor Matt did a great job of, of recognizing that, that critical words are sometimes are very necessary, but they can be very devastating at times if they're not presented well and not received well. And last week we talked about encouraging words, that sometimes an, a word of encouragement, a, a phrase, a statement... Something that picks us up would sometimes carry us through a season of our life and be something we'll never forget. And today I want to talk about a subject that's very close to home for many of us, fighting words. I grew up in a home where there were many fighting words. My parents often fought, usually the initiative of my dad, and typically whoever spoke the loudest and longest won. So if you could speak louder than the other person, if you could speak longer and keep, keep speaking so they couldn't speak, you were the winner. But the, the longer I watched those fights go on, I realized um, that my mom won many of those fights because she refused to participate. That the, sometimes the person who, who walks away from fighting is the one that's in the power position. Well, I determined as a, a young adolescent that someday I'm going to get married and Jesus will be the center of our marriage and we will never fight. So I met this girl and we were dating, and we had a, a few minor disagreements, but we never got into any major fights to prove our point, and we got married, and here we are 27 and a half years later, and we fought more in the last month than during our whole courtship. <laughs> and I think, how in the world did I marry a woman that's so contentious as, no, that wasn't, you know what, here's what I'm wondering. How in the world we could be so kind of wise in the Lord, so experienced at marriage, and yet we continue to have conflicts. I thought we were to be beyond this. But do you know what I've come to recognize? This is so important. Caring creates conflict. Caring creates conflict. If you care about somebody, if you care about something, it will draw you into conflict. And I believe if, that if we do not have conflict in our lives... I would have to conclude that there's nothing you care about deeply and there's nobody you care about deeply because, because caring creates conflict. It was caring that caused a revolutionary war on the, on the soil of this land because people believed in a principle, the principles of freedom and faith and they fought, shed their blood for these principles. There was a fight over something they valued and so if you're married, if you're in a relationship with parents, with friends, in work relationships, I want you to learn today how to fight for what's important. There's a man who travels around speaking, a, a business leader named Patrick Lencioni, and this summer uh, we got to, to listen to him at a conference. Patrick says that he and his roommate married two sisters, and Patrick, who's Italian by, um, by blood, found that he and his wife fought often, 
And it kind of bothered him that, yeah, we, my wife and I, uh, maybe it's because I'm Italian, we fight a lot. We talk about a lot of things. We get, we get pretty amped up. And, and his roommate, who married this gal's sister, they, they never fought. Well, a few years down the road, that other couple divorced. And his roommate came to Patrick and said, you know what? I think the reason our marriage didn't work is we never knew how to fight like you guys did. That there is a benefit to fighting and handling conflict in a way that honors God. I want to talk about that today because unless you're entirely different than than my wife and myself, you are dealing with conflict on a regular basis. I think it often hits marriage the most for the very reason that that is the relationship we treasure the most. But here's the problem. Some of us see conflict as a barrier. Some of us see conflict as a barrier that keeps us from moving forward in relationships. And I want to change your perspective of, of conflict today as we go through this study. In fact, if you have a Bible, you can open up to um, Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read a passage in there. But, but my goal today is not to show you how to eliminate conflict. My goal isn't to help you to eliminate conflict from your life. My goal is to help you elevate conflict to a rightful place where it belongs in our lives. A necessary place, or as Pastor Matt said a couple weeks ago, a necessary place. It's messy, but it's necessary. It's, it's painful, but it's productive. So in Philippians chapter 4, Paul writes to a church, and a church that had some relational conflicts within it, and he gives them some wise words. So before we read this, though, I want to ask you to consider the relationships you have the relationships you value. Maybe it's, maybe it's with your spouse, maybe with your children, maybe with your parents, maybe your teacher, maybe it's a good friend, and you've had conflict recently. I want you to say, Lord, if there's something I need to learn today, that my heart is open to receive that. So would you pray with me? Father, that you would speak to our hearts through your spirit and through your word, that we would be the kind of people that would not be afraid of conflict, but learn to fight in a way that, that honors you and glorifies you and preserves our relationships. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Paul says, therefore if, if, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion to make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. In the church there in Philippi was a unity issue. In fact, you can read in chapter 4, the second verse, that there were two ladies that weren't getting along. Their names are Yodia and Syntyche. And Paul pleads with them to get along with each other in the Lord. And he realizes that, that because of all the resources we have in Christ, that, that because of who Jesus is in our lives, And because of what the Holy Spirit's doing in our lives, there should be a unity, a selflessness. In fact, he tells people, it's not all about you. It's about about the relationships around you. In fact, here's a theme you're going to hear again and again today. It's not about me. It's about we. It's not about me. It's about we. That, That these relationships I have and these relationships that you have are very vital in our lives. 
So conflict is a part of any maturing relationship. They will come if you care. And if you see conflict as a barrier, you will conclude that then the relationship wasn't meant to be, or I've got to break off that relationship. It might be with your spouse. It might be with an employer. You just say, you know, there's conflict. I need to leave. People leave churches because of conflicts. There's a conflict. It's a barrier. We can't get past it. I'm going to leave. I want you to see conflict not as a barrier, but a bridge, as a necessary bridge to a place called intimacy to a place called intimacy, place you've never been before, place that, that you can experience if you are willing to cross the bridge of conflict. It's a bridge, not a barrier. Conflict arises when viewpoints differ and emotions run strong. It could be the result of a failed promise, unmet expectations, questionable decisions, irritating habits, um, necessary changes in relationships, It may be the response to words spoken that leave you confused, disappointed, hurt, offended. If unresolved, there are consequences, sometimes drastic consequences. If you have an unresolved issue, as we talked about three weeks ago, if you don't talk it out, you'll act it out. And here's how we act it out. All of a sudden, um, your attitude is, I don't want to be around that person anymore. I'm going to avoid them. So I'm not going to go down the hallway where that girl is because I don't want to see her. I'm not going to take that road home anymore because I might come across that person. I'm not going to walk down that that corridor at work anymore or go to those meetings or that service because I'll run into that person. We avoid going to certain places, stores, uh, restaurants, because we don't want to run into that person we have the conflict with. We aren't going to go out to get our mail at the time of day the neighbor does because we have a conflict with their neighbor and we don't don't want to interact with that person. And so your your attitude is one that, that says, I need to avoid them. Because every time I see them, it stirs up those feelings all over again. It affects your performance. When, when you are in a work situation and you have an unresolved issue, it affects your commitment. On a sports team, if, if you've got an issue with your coach or another player, it affects how you perform. It affects your physical health. That unresolved conflict really does affect your heart. It affects your, your um, immune system, your defense. It affects your sleep habits. How many of you have lost sleep Over a conflict. How many of you have moved to another room in the house to sleep because of a conflict? Okay? It affects your your physical health. It affects your relationship with people. It affects your relationship with God. So conflict is an issue we have to deal with. Now, you can deal deal, deal with it in one of three ways. First, avoid it. I'm just going to avoid this conflict. I'm going to pretend it doesn't exist. I'm just going to uh, minimize it in my mind. Uh, some of us think it's kind of like a, a bee sting. Eventually, it'll heal up and I'll get over it. But more often than not, conflict is like an ingrown toenail. Now, it doesn't just go away. It needs special attention. And so avoiding it doesn't make it go away. It just festers. And I don't know why you avoid it, but I don't like conflict. And most people I know don't like conflict. In fact, I asked last service a question I'm going to ask you. How many of you really don't like conflict? Raise your hand. Okay? How many of you like conflict? Raise your hand. <laughs> You're just waiting for a fight to break out over there, right? You know, hands waving, like, right now! You know, uh, most of us don't like conflict. And so we, we avoid it. We, we think that maybe if I address this, it's not going to help anything. 
What good is talking about it going to do? Um, Some of us avoid it because we've never seen it dealt with successfully. Our parents didn't deal with it well. We just haven't seen successful models. Some of us have this fear that if I bring it up, I'll get rejected. If I confront this person with this issue, with this conflict, they, they may reject me or they might explode. I know a man in our church that, that was going to confront his boss over an issue and he knew that, that his boss wasn't going to receive it well. So he planned to catch his boss when he arrived at work at 6.30 in the morning, parked his car up on a hill, watch when the boss drove up. When the boss drove up, he drove down. He walked in, walked into his boss's office, told him he was going to leave this job for another job. And you know what this boss did? He started throwing things around the office. But he knew that. My friend knew that's what was going to happen. He said, I want to I confront this boss when no one else is around. Sometimes we avoid conflict because of past experiences. You know, I tried that once. didn't go well. Or pride. I'm not going to bring it up. That's their issue, not my issue. In fact, I don't know if you guys deal with this, but sometimes we can play this game of hide and seek where you figure it out. You read my body language, and I'm waiting for you to come to me and ask me why I'm not feeling well. And then you probably think, well, I'm not going to play that game either. If you have a problem, you tell me about it. And so you get kind of at this stalemate. But I think sometimes those of us in the church, we spiritualize it. Well, Jesus surely doesn't want us to have conflict. So I'm just going to be tough and bear up under it. I'm going to endure it. Now, there is a level that I do believe we are to endure conflict. We are to, to put up, because you can't fight over everything that bothers you. It, you can't, you can't um, turn everything into a conflict. You know, if you're that type of person, Proverbs says you're like this dripping faucet or this, this, this nagging voice all the time, complaining. Nobody wants to be around a person like that. It says in the book of Proverbs, something that's very wise. Um, listen to this, 1911. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. That sometimes you have to say, do you know what? I know they forgot to put the new roll of toilet paper on. I'm not going to blow a gasket over it. I'll just do it myself. Or I'm going to pick up those dirty dishes, put them in the dishwasher. You know, you have to choose. Am I going to make everything a battle? You've got to pick your battles. You've got to pick the significant things. You can't battle over everything that disappoints you or frustrates you. But you need to find those things that do, that are of major importance. Last week, my favorite football team didn't play very well. And the, the, the fans are a little upset. But the quarterback of the Green Bay Packers was being interviewed in the middle of this week, and he told the fans this, R-E-L-A-X. For you Oakland Raiders fans, relax. Okay, that's what, just, <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I'm stirring up conflict. Here I'm going. Okay. Relax, chill. You know, just everything doesn't have to be a battle. Okay? Take it easy. Avoid. That's not a good way to deal with um, conflict. Second would be attack. Attack. Rather than putting on a facade of kindness, we opt for what we would call brutal honesty. Why does honesty have to be brutal, by the way? Well, the scripture says, speak the truth in love. So I'm going to speak the truth. Tell you how I feel, and you have it coming to you. The problem is we do it in a way that's very hurtful. Sometimes you may have been in a situation like this where you go into the house, and your spouse walks you into a room, closes the door behind, and says, we need to talk. 
which translated means I'm going to talk and you need to listen, okay? Now, I'm not going to say which gender is which position, but most of you kind of know how this goes, okay? You sit down, and I've got a thing or two to tell you about, and you need to listen. And so um, while, while his face is getting ripped off, he realizes I screwed up in a major way. Oh, boy. And the, the, the problem, though, is the relationship doesn't really get healed up. It becomes a t- time where I have a bone to pick with you, or I have something to get off my chest. And you hear the I, I, it's not a we. It's not a we. It's me more than we. And that's really the problem with both avoiding and attacking. I, I, I avoid it because of me, my fear, my hopelessness, my past. And I attack because of my anger, my issues, my defensiveness. It's me rather than we. And so we have to get to a place where we see conflict is not this big obstacle that's a nasty thing, but as a bridge to cross. And that's why we need to address it. Address it in a way that's mature and we treat it like adults. Not overreacting or exploding in an emotional tirade or letting it fester, but in a mature way that honors one another. Because when you do it in a mature, honorable way, it builds a bridge. I heard a statement by Gary Smalley many years ago, and it's one of those that at the time of my life, landed in my mind and my heart, and I said, you know what, that is revolutionary. And I'm not going to quote him exactly because I don't know his exact quote, but it was something like this. So I'm not going to put quotes on it. Every conflict is an opportunity for deeper understanding and intimacy. What conflict does is expose differences. An opportunity for two people to come together and say, you know, we differ here, and we're very passionate about something, but we've got we've to come to a place where we can talk about this and have a conversation about this because we're on the verge of entering a new place in our relationship. But to get there, it's going to be somewhat painful. Yesterday, I went to the health fair down in Fountain. They, they said, okay, we're going to take your blood, and uh, this will prick you just, just for a moment, and I knew they were going to stick that needle in my arm. But you know what? I don't know why. I, I've never passed out of the sight of blood, but all of a sudden I says, I'm not going to wash this. And I turn away, and, and they get that little, little uh, pinch feeling in my arm, and then they're drawing the blood out, and I didn't want to watch that, those tubes fill up. They had to fill out two vials, and I just didn't want to watch that. And I said, you know what? Just, you know, in a minute, this will be over, and then they're going to check my blood, and I'm going to find out some good things about my blood. That a little bit of pain... Uh, was surpassed by far by the benefits of it. And that's true with a lot of things in life. To, to move forward in life, usually there's a little bit of pain involved, um, whether it's exercise or with our health or relationships. You've got to be willing to endure the pain, face the awkwardness, the uncomfortableness, uh, the, the potential hurtfulness in order to address the issue. And in order to go to that place of addressing the issue, you've got to progress in the levels of communication. Because basically we have three levels of communication with people. Number one is superficial. Hey, it's, it's nice today. Isn't it a great sunshine? Yeah, did you see the balloons today? You know, just factual things that really there's, there's no risk at all involved in that. Everybody knows the facts. Um, secondly would be selective sharing. So I, I select the things. Hey, I'm thinking about um, applying for this job or I, I'm thinking about going to this school. Um, hey, I made a decision this week uh, to give my life to Christ. You start to open up about decisions and feelings and things about your life, but you, you selectively share that with people 
that you're wanting to get closer with, to kind of test the waters, to see if it's safe to go deeper. But to those that are the most significant relationships, we need to get to this place, the third level, which I would call the sincere level of communication. When we speak sincerely, it means, according to the dictionary, to say what you genuinely believe or feel. To truly open up the heart and be vulnerable. If you want to address issues, you're going to have to go to that place. So here's a picture in your mind. If you take those three levels of communication and you look at this triangle here, at the very top of it, there's very, that's the openness of your heart. Heart's not very open at the top. And you know what? There's very little risk and to be honest, very little reward. You're not going to have your best friendships there. But as you go down to the third level, the level of openness gets wider and wider to pretty soon you say, this is who I am. This is what I am. And there's a lot of risk there. You could get rejected. could get laughed at. But you risk it because you want to go deep in the relationship. In conflict, in dealing with this, as you open your heart to it, you have to be willing to go to that place. So how do we cross the bridge? I want to share with you um, some guidelines, some things that I've learned, my wife has learned over the years. Because we've learned that healthy conflict requires fighting fair. That there are certain things you do and there are certain things you don't do. When boxers go in a ring, there's certain um, things you can do. There are certain things you can't do. There's certain places you can't hit, and there's certain gloves you can't wear. And there are rules to fighting fair. And if we would learn in relationships to fight fair, I think we would go a long ways into making conflict to be a productive endeavor in our lives. Now, I want to throw out a warning here that when you enter the ring with someone, the conflict ring, it should be you and the person you have the conflict with, and that's it. I don't believe it's proper to fight in front of the kids when they're not part of the issue. I think it creates fear. It, it, it creates worry in their minds. They, they think mom and dad are going to get a divorce now. I said, you've got to go to a place. Maybe after the kids go to bed or we go out for coffee. Um, hopefully a place where we're not going to scream and yell. But hopefully a place that we can actually talk about this issue. If you have an issue at work, you don't, you don't throw it out there on the floor in front of everybody. You don't blast an email to everybody. You go to the one you have the conflict with face-to-face and you talk with them, have a conversation about this issue. That's the best way. I think that's the biblical way. Jesus always says, go to that person. Not send an email to them. Don't text them. Go to them and deal with this issue. So uh, guideline number one, know who the real enemy is and his tactics. Know who the real enemy is. So quick uh, to jump to the conclusion that my my husband is the enemy, or my wife is the enemy. But to be honest, you have, a, you have a bigger enemy than that. There's a spiritual enemy. His name is Satan. Satan, the scripture says, is a, he's called your enemy, the devil, prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now, how does Satan devour? He devours by destroying relationships, your relationship with God and your relationship with one another. That's what he, does, he, he delights in doing. And so in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are there. Satan comes in the form of the serpent and he puts a thought in their head that is contrary to God's thought. And what happens uh, as a result of them believing it is the relationship with God is severed. And even they uh, begin to have issues between themselves because they believe the lie of the enemy. I, I think Satan's biggest battlefield is not the flesh, even though the flesh causes trouble, I lust for food, lust for sex, lust for power and addiction and all those things. The biggest battlefield is right up here. It's, a, it's in, our, in our thoughts. It's the arguments in our minds. It's the things he whispered. When Jesus um, 
told Peter that he was the rock on which he would build his church. Just a few verses later, he shares with them this passage from uh, Matthew chapter 16. Jesus says, from that time on, he began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the leaders of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And here's what Peter does. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he says, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, and you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but only human concerns. Now, who put that thought in Peter's head that Jesus shouldn't go to the cross? It was Satan. And Satan whispers lies into your mind and mine. I, I've, seen, I've seen couples who stood before, in fact, I've even performed their weddings sometimes. They'll stand before an altar and they'll say they love each other deeply. But then a few years down the road, one or both conclude, you know what, we never really loved each other. And I think that's a whisper from the, from the, from the bottom of hell from Satan. Because I know you guys loved each other. Right now, you don't feel that way. But that's not the truth. Sometimes you, you, you jump to conclusion, my parents never loved me. My dad never loved me. The truth is, he did. But you're whispering to the lie of the enemy. You, you, may, you may believe, I'm, I'm worthless. I'm junk. I, I, I've made some mistakes. I'm a failure. And that's the lie of the enemy whispering in your head. And the danger is when you start to believe those things, it can start to take you down a path that's totally opposite of what God wants for you. So you have to be careful in what you're listening to when the enemy whispers. Second rule, desire God's will more than your own. Desire God's will more than your own. In James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, James is describing um, what's causing frustrations and arguments and quarrels. He says, what causes these fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. Now, we can easily read that and conclude, you know what, I keep asking people for things. I keep asking my spouse for something or my kids for something, and I realize I need to be asking God for those things. But I want to ask you to look at this a little differently. Maybe what James is saying is this. You do not have because you do not ask God what you should have. Because maybe what you're asking is not what God wants for you. And maybe in the midst of our arguments and conflicts, we should be stepping back and say, God, what do you want for my marriage? What do you want for my relationship with my children? I know what I feel, but what do you want? And instead of praying for my will to be done, pray for his will to be done. And oftentimes it's very different. We need to make sure that we want what God wants. Rarely do people in churches fight over the core issues. You know, people usually don't fight like, over issues like, you know what, I wish we could reach more people for Christ. You know, that, I think people are pretty much in agreement with that. You know what they argue over? Secondary issues. You know, how is the end times going to play out? What's, what's the role of women in leadership? How did the church respond to the gifts of the Holy Spirit? And, and things like that. But those courses, should, should we love people with the love of Jesus? Everyone goes, yeah, we should do that. But yet people will get frustrated with the church and leave over a secondary issue, not the primary things that, that God says this is what it should be about. We need to make sure that when we pray and ask God what his will is, that those are the things we fight over. And as parents, I would just encourage you, make sure that the things you're um, fighting over with your kids are those key things that God would want for them. 
when our kids were growing up and they were deciding what clothes to wear, we didn't have a lot of rules other than, other than a couple. Dress modestly and with respect for your body and the people around you. Within that, you've got a lot of freedom. You know, if you're going to battle over every single article of clothing, every single song that's played, every single TV show that's watched, you know, if you're going to make every issue a battle, you'll get exhausted. And you will frustrate the people around you. But pick those issues that you know have bigger consequences. For example, I think, I think it's important to be involved with who your kids are selecting as friends. In those young years, their friends will shape them, will influence them. Whose house they go spend the night with. I think those are critical. How, how they're going to behave when they drive the car, I think that's a critical issue because there are physical lives at stake. You know, in our house, one of the things that, that I've always felt was important is, is if, if, if we're taking care of you and raising you up, that, that you're going to go to church with us. Th- that's something I would fight over. That's something that I will convince you of. But you know what? I'm, I'm not going to sit in your room and listen to all your albums and, and critique them. I'm not going to do that. That's not, that's not a battle that's as big for me. Now, I'm not saying that's not one for you, but for me, that, that wasn't the big battle. I had other big battles that I think were important to God and his will. Third rule, begin on common ground. Find that common place from which to hold your conversation. One of those common places, and I think this is the starting point, is to recognize that your position is the same. We are sinners in need of grace. Because if you don't start there, the tendency would be is, I'm the innocent party and you're the one in the wrong. And and if you got right with Jesus and changed, we would have a great marriage or great relationship, or, or our, our relationship with parents and the kids, that'd be perfect if you just shape up and follow Jesus. The truth is, we are all sinners in need of grace. There was a friend of mine years ago uh, in a church, about 15 years ago, found out that his wife was having an affair with his best friend. It just tore him up. And he had to wrestle with this issue. Do I stay married to my wife, or do I divorce her? The Bible says... Adultery's grounds for divorce. What do I do? And he loved his wife. And the more he prayed about this, and the more he looked to God, here's what he concluded. He recognized that he had made some horrible mistakes, that he had dishonored his wife, that he had not treasured her as his bride. He had not treated her right. He didn't push her to have an affair, but he had neglected her. And when he met with her, he told her, he says, I have failed to be the husband God called me to be. Would you forgive me? You know what that did for her? Opened up her heart to say, I have dishonored you by straying morally. Would you forgive me? Two sinners in need of grace. And their marriage today is beautiful because they found that common ground in Christ. I think another common ground is is to find those principles that we agree on. I remember years ago, I won't share the whole story, but um, Julie and I got into a big kind of fight over the carpet because I was walking across the carpet in my street shoes and she said like you know get off the carpet with your shoes and I said I can walk on the carpet if I want to I help pay this mortgage if I want to walk on on the carpet I'm going to walk on the carpet (laughs) and then I said oh lord that's not how a pastor should act so after things cooled down sat down on the couch and said why in the world are we getting so worked up over fabric on the floor. Really. And you know what I found out? We both like clean carpet. 
I'm a cheapskate. I don't want to replace the carpet. <laughs> She's a homemaker, wants the carpet to look good when the guests come. I said, you know what? We both want this carpet to last a long time and look really good. So that's the common ground. How do we get there? Well, you know, if you take your shoes off when you come out, okay, I can do that. But see, we so quickly react to something. Like, you're not going to talk to me that way. And, and if you're that, then I'm this. And, and we're going to one-up each other. And it just escalates. And you, and you step back and go, wow, you know, we actually agree on the core thing. You know, it happens with finances. It, helps, it happens with disciplining the kids. It happens with, um, you know, date night and all these things that truly, I think, most of the time, we've, if we would talk through the principles, we would find we have this, the same foundation, same goal. You know, if you go to, a, if you work in a business and you went to your boss and, and you had an issue, but you told your boss, you know what, I love, I love working for this company. I think it's a great company. I love what we stand for. I love the people I get to work with. But there's something I really don't like, and here's what it is. If you, if you build that common foundation first, it's easier then to address the issues because you realize we're, we're actually on the same team looking at this issue as the conflict. Not each other, but this issue as the conflict. So we, we find the common ground. Guard your emotions. That's the next guideline. Guard your emotions. I think unbridled emotions get us into all kinds of trouble in conflict because anger typically rises or explodes and we say things or we do things that are violent and regretful. We start to push buttons. We start to use vulgar language. We start to call names. We start to to say things like, well, you're just like your dad, or you're just like your mother, or you're just like my ex-wife. And pretty soon, we're pushing those very sensitive buttons that we know that if you push them when you're angry, it'll get a reaction from the other person. Maybe you throw out those deadly words like divorce. Well, we should just get a divorce then. And you know that's going to get a reaction from the other person. You do that out of anger. But we've got to step back sometimes from anger. Not, not that all anger is bad. Sometimes anger motivates us, but uncontrolled anger is bad. Uh, in the book of Ephesians chapter 4, it says, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Sometimes you need space when you're angry. And, and to be honest, sometimes you do need to go to bed angry because you are not going to handle it well. But the principle there is don't let anger just seethe. Don't let it percolate because it's going to explode. So address it. Deal with the issue. Maybe you say, you know what? I'm not in a good mood right now, but tomorrow morning, can we talk about this? Can we talk about this issue tomorrow when I'm in a better place? And be careful. You're not the spouse that says, come on, right now, pastor said, right now before we go to bed. I know it's 1130, but we got to get it out of the way before we go to sleep. Because I'm not in a good place. Come on. No, back off. But make a point that we are going to address this issue. In Proverbs 15:1, it says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. I've been guilty of harsh words. And they do not resolve issues. They just stir up tension, stress, and anger in the other person. So be aware of what's happening inside. And make sure that we are being guided by the Holy Spirit. Love, peace, gentleness, kindness. Self-control, those are the fruit of the Spirit. And finally, seek to win the relationship, not the argument. Seek to win the relationship, not the argument. This may be one of the greatest lessons that that Julie and I have learned over the years. Um, Some of us are debaters. 
And we are really good at building up our case. We're really good at spinning the, the facts of the past to say, here's why I'm justified in what I did. And to be honest, sometimes I hear stories with people share, and I say, I believe your story, and I believe your story. And I think we're going to have to sit down and get all the stories out and untangle them. But, but sometimes that's almost impossible. I believe it's far better at time, at sometimes, just to do this. How about we call a truce? We'll never go back and undo the past. And I've made mistakes, and you've made mistakes. But let's move forward from this point. Because what we want most of all is that our marriage or our relationship is intact. Nobody, nobody wants to see one person win and one person lose in a relationship. I mean, what spouse wants to live with the mate who's, who's puffing the chest going, ha, ha, put him in his place or put her in her place. I won, proved you wrong. You know, really, you want to be married to someone like that? Nobody does. But if you're willing to say, much like Jesus, I'm willing to suffer disgrace. I, I, I'm willing to put aside what I believe is even a righteous answer. I'm going to put that aside because right now what's most important is relationship. When I asked Julie what's the greatest lesson she's learned about conflict, this was it. To ask the question, do you want to be right or do you want to be reconciled? Do you want to be right or do you want to be reconciled? What's sad is sometimes people will come, even to me as a pastor, they have an issue with someone and if I ask them this question, you want to be right or you want to be reconciled? Well, they need to be, they need to be treated with justice. They need to get to what's coming to them, okay? But do you, do you desire to be reconciled? I don't know. I don't, I don't want to see that person ever again. I just want them to get what's coming to them. I don't think that's Jesus' desire for us. He, he wants us to leave our, the gift at the altar and go back and be reconciled with the person that we have an issue with. Satan's goal is to wreck a relationship. Jesus' goal is to reconcile the relationship. Two different directions. And if your goal is to win the argument, more than likely you'll wreck the relationship. If it's to win the relationship, you'll reconcile. And that's the goal, to reconcile the relationship. And, and be careful that you don't play the God card. Here's the God card. I've been praying about this. Me and God are right and you're wrong. Okay? I know I'm right because God told me. So... You need to shape up and get things right. That doesn't work very well. You need to find a common ground, come together, seek reconciliation in the relationship. You know, and one of the things that I've learned over time is, is just a, a, a technique of showing that the relationship is primary in how you say things, how you even voice criticisms. Because you could say something like this. Honey, we never go on a date night. I heard of the Smiths and they went on this great night and went out to eat or went to the movie. We never go out on a date night. How come we never go out on a date night? Well, do you know what? Uh, all of a sudden, as a guy, I'd get defensive. Well, we went on a date night. You remember back in March we went on that date night and in 2009, you know, I would call that a date night. There really was a date night. You know, I'm trying to argue the point. This would work much better. What if, what if you said to someone, I love it when we spend time together. You remember those times we'd get away by ourselves and go on a date night? I really love those. Could we make a point to do that, you know, maybe a couple times a month? And, you, and all of a sudden the defenses drop down. You go, yeah, yeah, I'd like that too. Because frankly, when someone says, we never have a date night, there's nothing in me that says, man, I'm just desiring a date night with you now. 
I can't wait to go out with you. <laughs> no, it doesn't. If we would just learn to present it better, because what you're presenting is, I like us. I like us when we're doing well. And can we, can we just encourage us? It's not what I want. It's not what you want. This is for us. Does that make sense to you? Just, just present it in a better way. It, it goes a long way in making relationships work better. So I don't know what God is saying to you. Because maybe there's something you need to start seeking. This is kind of your response. God, God, I need to start seeking something. Maybe it's I need to seek your will in a relationship. I need to seek for that bridge over conflict. That's what I need in my life. I need to, to seek that. Maybe for some of you, the response is you need to start doing something. Maybe it's I need to start listening better. I need to start controlling my rage. I need to start talking differently to my kids or my spouse or my employees or my friends. I need to do that differently. I need to start addressing the conflicts in my life. And then there are some things that we probably have to stop. I need to stop blowing my gasket. I need to stop pushing the buttons. I need to stop threatening violence. I need to stop doubting that God can heal a broken relationship. I believe that if you and I would learn to fight well for the things that are most important, it would transform every relationship we have. So let's pray for that. Father, thank you that you fought for us. Thank you that you went to a cross to enable us to be reconciled with you. And I thank you, Lord, that you want us to be reconciled in relationships. Lord, I pray for those relationships in this room which seems so broken and so painful and so irreparable that, Lord, you show them there's hope through Jesus Christ for reconciliation in every relationship, whether it be, whether it be spouses and kids or work in relationships, church relationships. I pray, Father, for unity. I pray, Father, that we would hold on to that passage from Philippians chapter 2, that if Christ has done anything for us, if the thing he's done for us is to unify us with him, surely he can unify us with humans. And I pray, Lord, that we would seek that with your help and with the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, before you leave, and some of you are probably going to go home and fight today, but have a good fight, okay? Really good fight. Thanks for listening to today's message. Be sure to join us again next time.